Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love them to be a part of what we have going on in our Vine Kids time. They'll be able to go out this side door here. If you have middle school age kiddos, five, six, seven in that range, Mr. Jeff's back there. He'll show you out that back door. We have a, a class for our middle school age kids as well. <clears throat> you got to forgive me a little bit this morning. My voice is kind of funky. Um, I don't know, I feel fine, but I got some kind of issue there. So I guess I'm about at 65%. What I was telling Don is better than the average man anyway. So we're in good shape. <clears throat> yeah, my 65 is a strong 100. Um, so anyway, it's kind of fading out of me. It's kind of weird, but uh, that's all right. So I'm excited to start the new year back in the book of John. So for those of you that have been coming for a while, or, or if you're here for the first time, I guess, we started this journey almost a year ago. The first week in February of 2017, we started doing a verse-by-verse -verse walk through the gospel of John. And I teach this way a lot, um, and so we enjoy going through scripture around here. It's part of just sort of our DNA. We love working through God's word. And we started the book of John with really an outlook of saying, what would it look like if I understood that eternal life began today and not when I die? And so we're actually getting into that a little bit today, but that was the entire point of the gospel of John is that he wants us to see the deity of Christ. He wants us to understand the divine nature of who Jesus was, that he was the incarnation, that he came to bring us life, not at some great moment at the end of our lives when we draw our last breath, but in this very moment in which we stand, Jesus came to bring us true, abundant, real life, right? And so we've explored this idea of eternal life, and we've done it verse by verse by looking at the narrative of the gospel of John. And John's gospel is different than all the other gospels, right? He is not interested in the historicity of Jesus. He's more interested in showing us his deity and the incarnation that Jesus came as God in the flesh and he came to redeem humanity. And so John's sole intention in his gospel is that we might see Jesus as God, which makes my goal and sole intention as a teacher or preacher very easy because I just want you to see Jesus. Like that is all we care about. And John's gospel is that picture and is different than the other gospels in that way. And for the past weeks, actually, we took a little break over, over Christmas and so in the Advent season. But if we look back to the last week that we studied, we had seen for about a month and a half this groundswell of hostility and anger that has been building against Jesus. The Pharisees had, had gone from seeing Jesus as this sort of harmless rabbi traveling around the Judean countryside, healing people and doing nice things and loving on people to a real threat to their way of religious life. And that groundswell of anger and hatred had become such a vital part of the kind of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees that it elevated to a level where we left off in chapter 9 where they were going to try and kill Jesus on multiple occasions and even had rocks in their hands to stone Jesus to death. This groundswell of worldly anger and hostility had grown and John is leading us to the cross. We're going to have a little two chapters here that kind of show a pastoral side of Christ. And then the remainder of John's gospel is going to point us into the last week of the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. The majority of John's gospel is wrapped up in that movement because John is interested in us seeing the deity of Christ. But we left off in chapter 9 at this high point of contention. It was at an all-time high, and they are doing everything. The Jewish leadership and influencers are doing everything they can to kill Jesus. And we're coming on the heels of this last altercation, and we're going to see how Jesus uses a couple of metaphors to try and tell them what he actually came to do and what that means for both them and for you and me. 
um, as followers of Christ today. So we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 10. If you've got it, I want you to go ahead and open up there. We'll be in John 10, 1. It's important to know, and I'll mention this in a minute again, but this is a continuation of the end of chapter 9. So before we open God's word, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's see what John has for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Lord, I thank you that you have faces here that are new, and you have faces here that have been coming for years. Lord, I thank you that you have drawn us from every side of this city, um, Lord, with all kinds of things going on, both that are wonderful and things that are hard. We brought distractions, and we brought fears and failures. We brought joys, and we brought triumphs. Some of us have an incredible outlook on 2018, and some of us are afraid of what it brings. The truth is, God, is that you brought us here from all these different walks of life. And the amazing thing about your character, Lord, is that you meet us in the middle of all of that. That you don't require us to fix our lives or clean it up or make sure it's functional or presentable so that we can show up before you, God. Instead, you take initiative with us as creation and you step into our life and you meet us where we are and you redeem our brokenness. And Lord, what we're going to see today in John's gospel is that you are the entry point for true, real, full peaceful, restful, abundant life. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Just take a moment and just in the recesses of your soul, just pray and ask God to teach you through his word this morning. And as we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone around you. Remember, everything that unfolds this morning is not about you and your enjoyment and your entertainment. It's about people meeting Jesus and the Holy Spirit working and moving in their lives. And so pray for someone around you. If it's your spouse or if it's someone you've never met or just that person, just pray that God would move in them and teach their hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it is true, and that it is real, and that it is alive. So, Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. And so teach our hearts this morning. Your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is chapter 10. We're going to look. It's actually one big section that's a continuation from 9, and we're going to look at it in two parts. Next week, we're going to finish it, I hope. This week, we're going to start it. And so um, we will be one through, I guess, 10 today, and then we're going to finish up. But it's one big section. It's coming on the heels of chapter 9. And this is what Jesus is saying in this dialogue. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this as a figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come and go and will find pasture, and the thief, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. 
Now, it's really important that we understand and read Scripture in its context. And the full context actually comes on the heels of chapter 9. Now, chapter 9, if you've been with us about a month ago, you'll remember that Jesus had healed this man that was blind. And the Pharisees had a huge problem with it. In fact, they kept going back to this man saying, who healed you? And they kept saying, he kept saying it was Jesus. And they'd say, where is he? And he's like, I don't know. And so they got really angry at this guy who they know had been blind from birth. And yet now he's been given sight. And so finally the Pharisees call him up one more time, right? And they say, renounce this Jesus, worship God, because we know that Jesus is a sinner and they throw him out. And so Jesus goes and finds this now seeing man who was blind, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man, or now not blind man, says, well, who is the Son of Man? And Jesus says, it's me. And he says, yes, and he worships him on that very moment. And then Jesus begins this dialogue with the Pharisees. And he essentially says to them, he says, judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The Pharisees said, what do you mean? Are we blind too? And Jesus says this to them, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see your guilt remains, I tell you the truth. And you can see how chapter nine and 10, if you're looking at your Bible, are connected, right? It's supposed to read, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see your guilt remains, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen, those are connected. Now you got to remember the chapter numbers and verse numbers in your Bible were not written by John, right? They came later as the Bible was transcribed over. So what we see here is Jesus' dialogue, a continuation of what's happening in nine. And that's really important in a moment because we're going to see that Jesus is talking directly about the Pharisees and Jewish influencers. So chapter 9 and 10 are connected, and this is a direct connection to the lecture or the confrontation he's having with the Pharisees, I tell you the truth. But what we see there in these two passages, and these passages are two metaphors, two metaphors. One in which the Pharisees and Jewish leaders aren't going to understand, and so Jesus follows up that metaphor with one that is both clearer and more offensive at the same time, all right, which is not all that uncommon. And he uses another metaphor. So we're going to look at both of those metaphors this morning, and then I'm going to unpack just a few things that I want us to see. Now, the first metaphor comes in 1 through 6, and Jesus is really talking about the false shepherd right? So we're looking at these, these blind Pharisees. And what's fascinating is he had given sight to this man who was blind that his vision is becoming clearer and clearer. And now he's worshiping Christ. And yet the leaders and religious influencers of the day are becoming blinder and blinder, right? And so Jesus continues that thought up by saying essentially that anyone that enters the pen where the sheep are, right? And he does it by a way that's not the gate. So if he comes over the fence or he doesn't get permission from the watchman, they're thieves and robbers. And the sheep won't know that person's voice and they won't follow that person because the sheep know who their true shepherd is. Now, a lot of these metaphors are going to be lost on us because we don't live in an agrarian society. We don't live in a society that's built around shepherding and farming. We live in a very urban kind of setting here, for the most part, very urban, especially compared to the way things were. But these would have been metaphors that people would have completely understood. At night, if you led your sheep into town from where they were pasturing, you would put them in common pens. 
And those sheep would go into a large pen with all these other sheep from the shepherds. If they weren't out tending them at night, they would bring them into a common pen. And usually there was someone at the gate there, a watchman, that would let the shepherds check their sheep in, if you will. And the way the shepherds got their sheep out of the pen was not because they were numbered or they were painted different colors or whatever. The shepherd would walk to the gate, and more times than not, he would sing. He wouldn't even speak. He would sing. And the sheep, which aren't the brightest animals, they knew the voice. And they wouldn't follow a voice that they didn't hear and understand and know. And so that shepherd would walk to the front of the pen, and he would sing or he would call to them, and they would come. And it's amazing, just those sheep would follow that shepherd. And what Jesus is alluding to, of course, in this this metaphor is he's saying, if you don't enter through the gate, if you don't check in with the watchman, if you don't have his permission, if you climb over the fence, you are attempting as a thief and robber to take something that doesn't belong to you. But those sheep will not follow you because they know the shepherd and the shepherd knows them. And what, of course, Jesus is alluding to is that he is gathering sheep from among his people in Israel, right? And you can't steal those from him. They know him and he knows them, and he's calling to them, and they know his voice, and he's referring to these Pharisees and Jewish leaders, because we just saw that unfold with the blind person, right? They had told this blind guy, right, that he could no longer follow this Jesus, yet they didn't care for him. They threw him out. They didn't have the heart of a true shepherd, yet Jesus calls this guy back and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, who is he? He says, it's me. The guy worships him. And Jesus is calling his sheep and he's caring for them and nurturing them. And these false shepherds really only want for themselves. They're not interested in the sheep, right? They're interested in control. And so Jesus is making this this metaphor. In fact, John says he was using this as a figure of speech. So the first metaphor is Jesus essentially saying, you are thieves and robbers. They don't belong to you. You don't have permission from the gatekeeper. They don't even know your voice, right? But John also tells us that they don't understand. They don't get that metaphor. So Jesus gives a second metaphor that is both clearer and at the same time more offensive. This time, instead of being about a false shepherd, he makes this metaphor about himself. And he's direct with it. And he says, essentially, that I am the gate for the sheep. So let's keep the same sheep mentality rolling. I am the sheep, the gate for the sheep. All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and will find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I have come that they may have life and life to the full. So he says, listen, you want to hear this a different way. I'll be more clear. I am the gate, right? I am the one by which you have to enter through and come out. I am the one by which you are granted permission, All who ever came before me, and I'll get to this in a moment, he's not referring to prophets and forefathers, he's referring to the Jewish leaders that were supposed to be leading Israel. All those that came before me were thieves and robbers, and the sheep didn't listen to them. But I am the gate, right? Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will go in, and they will go out, and they will find pasture. The thief, right, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So it's both clearer because Jesus put some names on these things, okay? I am the gate. I'm not just referring to some generic kind of thing. It is me and I am the one that saves. And you are thieves and robbers and you come to steal and to kill and to destroy. All right, it's clear. But it's also more offensive because he labels each of these pieces in a very strong way. 
And so it's going to build this groundswell of hatred that the Pharisees have towards Jesus. Because remember, their issue with Jesus was his claim to deity. And what does Jesus say? I am the gate and I am the way in which people get saved. That's me. You, you want to know what you do? You kill and you steal and you destroy. That's the dichotomy here. So he puts these two metaphors out there. All right, but wrapped up in these metaphors are some, something that's a few things that are really, really powerful that we can see on the surface and some that are just a little bit deeper. The first thing I want you to understand with these metaphors is very clearly, and why we read scripture in context, is that the Pharisees and Jewish leaders and influencers are the thieves and robbers. Now, I know it kind of goes without saying, but I want you to see it clearly. It's connected from chapter 9, and it's going to make sense in just a minute why that's so important. But he's not referring to other people. He's referring and talking directly to the Pharisees and those people that are supposed to be leading the people of Israel, their religious and worship life. They are the thieves and robbers. He's explaining to them from chapter 9 that they have entered the pen, coming from chapter 9 to chapter 10, they've entered the pen not with the permission of the gatekeeper, not through the gate. They have gotten their appointment through their own doing and not through the blessing of God. And they are attempting to take what doesn't belong to him to them through deception, right? And through control. And what Jesus is saying is a true sheep will never follow you, right? Because you are self-serving and self-seeking and you only desire to control. And that was evidenced in their interaction with the man that had been made. He had a sight given to him from the blindness. They didn't care about him. They had walked by him for years and years and years as he begged. They were not concerned that this man that was blind now has his sight. How exciting is that? They were more mad that he was healed and giving credit to Jesus. They didn't care about him. They weren't true shepherds. They didn't truly love the people. They loved themselves. They are thieves and robbers. All right? Now, this is going to become important in a moment. So that's the first thing that I want you to understand. The second thing I want you to understand, of course, is that Jesus is the true gate to life. Now, that second metaphor is really cool because twice in it, Jesus says, I am the gate. Now, when we think about gates, we think about places of entry or exit. So it's a metal or a wooden thing that that leads us out of a place into another place. When we think about spiritual things or eternal life, a gate is always the exit into something bigger, better, right? The pearly gates or it's some kind of magic or kind of mysterious portal that when we die, right, we enter from this life through the gate into eternal life. That's how we often see this gate. And when we talk about it, that's how we tend to reference it. Like this life here is one realm, one sphere, one sphere, one idea. And then when we exit this, when we die, we leave the gate of this life and we enter into the next, the eternal one. But what Jesus says here is so different than that, that it's incredibly powerful. Listen to what he says. He says, I am the gate, right? I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come and he will go and he will find pasture. Now think about that for a moment. If you really think about what Jesus is saying, he is not saying I am the gate by which you will be saved. When this world is over and you draw your last breath, you will pass through me into eternal life. No, Jesus says something different. He says, I am the gate. Through me, you will be saved and you will go out and you will come and you will find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I 
have come that you might have life and life to the full. What that means is that Jesus isn't the exit into eternal life by which our whole goal as followers of Christ is just to hold this show together until we die and we can enter from this life through some magic gate portal into heaven. What that tells us is that Jesus is actually the entry point to true, real, restful, peaceful, abundant life right in this moment. Because we enter through him and are saved and we go out and we come back and we find pasture. We have life. Sheep that go out and they eat and they graze and they exhibit the life that they were called to. They're going back and forth in this world through the gate because Jesus is the access point to true, real life. As a follower of Christ, your goal is not to hold this thing together until you die. As a follower of Christ, your life is called to true, real abundance. It says life to the full, but the better translation is abundance or excessive. I have come that you might have abundant or excessive life. The gate to life means that you were created to do more than draw breath. You were created to have real life that comes and goes through Christ, that gives a new way of looking at the world and at things and at stuff and at people, that he changes our outlook, and that you were created for beautiful, abundant life. And I'm not talking about some prosperity thing where you were created to have your best ever, everything's going to be great, you're going to be a millionaire. That's lies. I'm telling you, you were created for a real, full, restful life that says, Jesus, you are more than enough for me in this world. And I'm not just hanging on until I get to see you when I die. Because as a follower of Christ, I get you now. And that changes everything. Because if we truly believe that as followers of Christ, we're saved, that salvation doesn't just happen when we die. It happens now. I am saved from the death that was reigning inside of me. I am saved from the outlook of destruction that was a part of my soul. I am saved from the selfish way of life that says this whole thing is about me. I am delivered and it changes the way I see the world from this moment through every waking breath of my life. Jesus is the gate to life, not an exit from this one. And that changes everything. But the real thing, and the last thing I want you to see this morning is the the difference between these two ideas. Verse 10. The thief comes to steal only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. So Jesus takes this idea. We just said the, the Pharisees and Jewish leaders and influencers were the thieves and robbers. Jesus is the gate to life. And then verse 10, 10 kind of parses those off each other. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, this is why reading Scripture in its context is incredibly important. Because you've probably heard this verse before, and you've probably always heard it saying the thief referring to Satan or the devil. Satan or the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is both true and untrue at the same time. Because technically, if we look at it in its context, the thief here is undeniably pointing to the Pharisees and Jewish leadership. They are the thieves and robbers in both metaphors. They are the ones that are entering the pen in a way that they shouldn't. They are climbing over the gate without the permission of the gatekeeper. They are trying to call what isn't theirs. They are self-seeking. They are liars and they are thieves and they are robbers. So on one hand, we look at 1010, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. We're directly connected to the thieves and robbers. The thieves and robbers come only to steal, kill, and destroy. But on another hand, we know that John uses that word in the singular. And so most likely, he's also referring to the thief behind the thieves. Now think about that for a moment. Now this isn't a surprise, right? Because in chapter 8, just one page back, Jesus actually calls the Pharisees 
and religious, religious ruler, excuse me, children of the devil. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth because there is no truth in him. So Jesus says the thief, right? The thief of thieves comes only to steal and kill and destroy. It's not an isolated reference to just Satan in the eternal, right? It is a reference to both the Pharisees and Jewish leadership and the worldly picture of anything that is apart from Christ that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the incredible part of this is what Jesus came to do. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the excessive, have it to the abundant, and have it to the full. So the world and its leadership and its direction and its culture will all point us away from true life because there's only one way, right, to have true life, and it's the gate. It's the only access point. Everything else is not true life. It's a lie. Jesus says true life, abundant, real, full life, enters through the gate, and they go out, and they find pasture, and they come and they go, and I've come that you might have real true life. Everything else that doesn't go through the gate is a lie. It's built on thieves and robbers. What that means is that culturally, anything that doesn't point us or take us through the gate is a lie. As followers of Christ, our entire identity is wrapped up in how we go through Jesus changes our outlook, changes the way that we think about love, changes the way we think about people, changes the way we think about money, changes the way that we think about our stuff, our children, our spouses, everything. Because we've been saved and we come and go and find true, real, abundant life. The world wants to tell us that there's alternate ways there. And Jesus says all of those about thieves and robbers, the thief of the thieves. That means even behind, right, these amazing Pharisees that were trying to do religious things, their self-seeking, self-serving, give-me-control lifestyle was controlled by the evil one. And Jesus calls them out on it. Your father, the devil, you are controlled by the thief of thieves. This morning, what I want you to understand as we look at these metaphors is that Oftentimes, we really do think the end goal of the Christian life is just to make it to heaven. And we even read Paul's kind of teaching, and we think, if I can just get the crown, right? Like, we're just, if I can just hold this show together until we get there, then I, I will have made it. But that's not really what we were created for. We were created for real, excessive, abundant, beautiful, grace-filled, peace-filled, joyful life right this moment. That's how you were made. You were made to go in and out of the gate and find pasture and joy and abundance. If that doesn't mark your life, you have to ask yourself, how are you living? What are you going in and out of? What thieves and robbers have you listened to? Because if you're not listening to the voice of God following in and out, coming and going through the gate of Jesus, the life-giving nature of Christ, then you're listening to the voice of thieves and robbers and liars. What voices are you listening to? There's only one true shepherd, and that shepherd is Jesus. And he knows you, and he calls you. And when we follow him, true life, true life, real, abundant, excessive life, joyful, amazing, 
beautiful life. Not a life that's not full of hardships, but a life that sees things differently and understands the nature of what we've been saved from. That life is yours in Christ. The table that we celebrate and we celebrate communion on is the picture of that. It's what Jesus gave us as this incredible reminder of what he came to do for us. See, none of this you could do on your own. I couldn't do any of it on my own. So Jesus is an incredible nature. <coughs> Excuse me. Did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Our best attempts take us to death. Jesus brings us life. So on that very night that we're going to get to here in just a few chapters, actually, on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would gather with his disciples, the night that he would celebrate with them, that very night he gave them this table as a way of remembering what he was going to do for them. And that became the picture of the Christian church that unites us with believers across space and time as we celebrate in the midst of all of our differences the one singular thing that unites us, which is Jesus. On the very night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks, and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. This is the picture of what Christ has done for us to call us from death to life. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. In our community, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying, we want you to come down front or have a station in the back, come before the Lord, pull a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it. Part of that is saying, God, I want to surrender my heart to you. I am coming before you to be served by what I couldn't do for myself. The Bible is very specific about how we do communion and calls us to look retrospectively into our hearts to make sure that we participate in this free and clear, that we lay our sin out before the Lord, we confess, and we understand exactly what we are doing. This is not a habit. This is not just another piece of worship, right? This is a reminder and a promise of what Jesus did until he comes again. I invite our servers to come forward. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning and to celebrate this incredible sacrifice that you've made for us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here and celebrate communion together. But we're more grateful for what this means and represents, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, you died and rose from the dead that we might have true life. You are the true shepherd. God, you are the caretaker. You are the giver of life, both of salvation that is eternal and salvation that begins this very singular moment of our lives. You call us to a bigger and better life because of who you are. You have given us free, abundant, true, joyful, excessive life in Christ. So Lord, as we worship you, and as we share this meal together, Lord, instruct our hearts and draw us into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to come forward and then continue to stand as we celebrate this meal together.